right theme. Luke chapter 19. We will begin reading. It's a little bit lengthier passage than uh, normal. We'll begin reading in verse 28. Luke 19, beginning with verse 28. And when he, that is Jesus, said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and to Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was nearing, drawing near, already uh, on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because... You did not know the time of your visitation. Father, these are sobering words that we uh, have just been reading. And a lot more is uh, here than just a, a historical account of something that happened a long, long time ago. In these words, Lord, are contained lessons for us, the reality of what it meant for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on that day. And Father, uh, most of all, the lessons that we can learn is the, the, the call to true discipleship that he was giving to not only his disciples, but indeed all of the people that were surrounding him today. So, Father, as, as we normally do, we ask you for divine insight. 
We want this to be more than just a story. We want this to speak truth and reality into our own lives. Lord, I have needed this story this week, and I will continue to need it in the days ahead. And I know that my brothers and sisters in Christ will too, and even those who might be here today who do not know you yet, I pray that they would listen and be challenged by the call to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to lift up a a ministry to you today. I want to lift up Dave and Karen Robinson of Crew Cities to you. Lord, this faithful couple that has come and blessed us and refreshed our hearts more than once, we pray for them as they are seeking to reach cities for the Lord Jesus Christ through this ministry, and we lift them up to you today. Now, we thank you, Lord, for what you are going to do in us, and we hope through us as we prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as Jim said a few minutes ago, this is the beginning of the week that is typically called Holy Week or Passion Week. It is the week between today, the triumphal entry, we might sometimes call this, and you'll see why in just a minute, the untriumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the time between today and then next Sunday, the day that we celebrate resurrection. Now, the Latin phrase of passion means literally to endure or to suffer. So the key is Jim pointed out just a few minutes ago, and the key for us to be prepared for this week is seeing the willingness of Jesus Christ to suffer on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. Now, I don't know about you, but Jim, as you were sharing that a minute ago, I thought to myself immediately, my my first thought was, wow, I know where Jim is going with this, Is this going to be too much for children? You'll have to raise your hands, but I would wonder if some of you were thinking the same thing. Listen, folks, our children need to begin to learn what Jesus was willing to go through for you and for me in his suffering and death on the cross for sinners like us. There was a movie out some years ago called The Passion of the Christ. Some of you saw that, and, and some of you didn't see it because you heard the, the, the stories about the horrific scenes, and it depicted what Christ went through, his willingness to suffer on our behalf. Now, I alluded to this a minute ago. This event about which we just read is much more than just historical. And so what I want to do today is to share briefly some some powerful lessons that seem to summarize the the teachings, and, and I would say parenthetically, the loving warnings that Jesus gave to people throughout his ministry. Because our goal is for you to prepare your hearts for Resurrection Sunday, 
And, and by the way, every day there ought to be a taste of Resurrection Sunday, but so that this coming Sunday you'll be more concerned with being clothed with Christ than you are with the clothes that you wear to Easter Sunday. Now, I, I was thinking of that this morning, and there was a time about 10, maybe 20 years ago when that would have made more sense. But we really do want you to be clothed with the Christ. So we're going to do three things. Here they are. You can fill in the blanks as we go through this. Three lessons out of this particular passage of Scripture about true discipleship. By the way, that's what we've been talking about in the book of James. True discipleship. The first thing that I want you to see, and I hope that you did see it in this story as we read through it, is that true discipleship is more than feelings. Fascination with Jesus is not the same as following Jesus. Adoration of Jesus is not the same as following Jesus. Look at the quote right at the top of the quotes. C.S. Lewis said this, Jesus produced mainly three effects, and we see all of these in the Passion Week, hatred, terror, and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Now, you can see it in the beginning of the story. The crowd had incredibly strong feelings. You need to try to picture what was going on. I think sometimes we don't, we don't really see the picture when it says they were throwing palm branches. And sometimes today, churches actually will go out. I don't know where they find them all, but they'll find palm branches. Do you realize what these folks were doing to get the palm branches? Folks, they were destroying trees. Now, you might not have liked that if they came by your house and you had a bunch of pretty palm trees that you had planted years before, and all of a sudden these people were ripping branches off of palm trees. They threw their robes onto the back of a smelly donkey. Now see, you, you don't really feel that. It doesn't have that feel until you understand why, what's going on here. By the way, and this is just an aside, Jesus came riding on a donkey. Does that sound kind of strange to your ears sometimes? He was the king. By the way, this was a, a, a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 9. And he fulfilled it perfectly back then when a king came in peace and with humility. It was appropriate, and they often did. They rode on a donkey. But by the way, let me just give you a little insight. When Jesus comes again, he will not be riding on a donkey. He will be riding on a white war horse. Coming back is the conquering king. That, that's just an aside. But you, you need to get a picture of this. People were taking off their clothing. Their cloak it represented a, a very nice piece of their apparel. You think of the nicest coat that you have, and you would rip it off after you've torn these trees apart, and you would rip it off, and you're throwing it onto the back of this donkey that probably hadn't had a bath, in a while, 
maybe never. But some of them were taking off their cloaks and they were throwing them on the ground, the dirty ground, not just pavement out there, but a dirt road so that the donkey could tromp on them. There was loud shouting. There was cheering. For me, about the closest I think I could come to it, it, it's not on a Sunday morning. I I noticed that there was a a little bit of excitement and fervor, at least the raising of hands. I I, I think that's what I saw, but but probably the closest that I've ever come to it was an old promise keepers meeting that I went to back in the 90s. Anybody ever went, uh, go to men? Did you ever go to a promise keepers meeting? And uh, uh, it, it was a big rally. And I remember one particular thing that they did. They did a cheer, a Jesus cheer. I don't know if you've ever done that, but one side of the, we would be prompted. And so one side of the, the, the stadium, this was at Arrowhead Stadium, and it was packed. Imagine this with all these guys. And so on one side they say, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And then the other side would shout back. Now, I don't know if that was going on that day, but it says they were shouting. They were praising the Lord. Can you imagine Jesus on the donkey and on one side after these people had thrown the branches and they'd thrown their coats and they were saying, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you in the other side of the road answering back? Now, please don't hear me speaking against appropriate enthusiasm or excitement or being expressive about the things of God, either in your own individual life or in corporate worship. So I am not saying that. And by the way, I hope you saw that part where Jesus basically says the same thing when when he was rebuked so that he would, in turn, rebuke his disciples, tell them, Jesus, to settle down. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. If they keep quiet, the inanimate rocks will cry out in praise for me. But I do see one very powerful application, and this goes for you and for me. The reality of our, listen, the reality of our celebration and our enthusiasm for Jesus on Sunday Now, that's assuming that you get excited on Sunday. By the way, not excited about the music, that's okay. If you appreciate the music, that's good. Or if you appreciate the the teaching in your ABF class, that's good. I'm talking about a genuine enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus Christ. But the real crux of the matter is this, that if you are excited and you're showing it on Sunday, it will be completed only if your thoughts, your words, and your actions are lived out for Jesus for the rest of the week. There was another time when there was a crowd following Jesus and he turned to them and he said, look guys, 
if you're going to follow me, if you're going to come after me, you've got to do. This is not a suggestion. You've got to do some things. You've got to deny yourselves. You've got to take up your cross daily, and you've got to follow me. So we see, first of all, there was a great deal of enthusiasm, energy expended. They were excited about Jesus, but it didn't last. And most of you have been around, you've heard the story long enough to know that the the accolades and the, the cheering and the shouting for Jesus that happened on his triumphal entry turned, and in less than a week, That same crowd was crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want him. From we love him to we don't want him. What we want is a revolutionary named Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. But away with this Jesus. So what happened? I mean, really, what happened to this crowd? What happens to some people that you have known? I don't know. Maybe somebody wandered in here today. What's happened to you? I was in college when my first experience, uh, I had my first experience with this, college roommate. And we were both on fire for for Jesus. We had both come out of backgrounds where we were not walking with the Lord and we were walking with the Lord. And we went, we, we, we witnessed, we shared, we prayed together. We were in Bible studies together. But I began to notice something about my friend that he began to just kind of distance himself. And then he began not to show up. He began not to be there. And before you know it, he, he was gone. He moved out. And he was not walking with the Lord. I've lost touch with him. I've tried several times to to Google, to get on social media and see if I could find him, to find out if he ever came back. I don't know. We had a situation in our church. We've had situations like this, but uh, uh, to me it was notable. It's It's been some years back. I'm talking about here in this church where there was a a woman, many of you know who I'm talking about, a woman who just was on fire for the Lord. Great woman. Bible studies, sharing, visiting, praying for her family to come to know Christ. And it seemed to me, now, John MacArthur says this, no one ever just falls out of a tree. I don't know when it started, but that woman ended up turning her back, not just dropping out of church because it was inconvenient and because she was busy, but she turned her back on the whole thing and said, I don't believe any of it is true now. And that took a lot of us by surprise. And I had not a few people who were emailing me or calling me and saying, what in the world can happen? I've had this kind of experience over and over again. I'll run into somebody and they'll have like a, uh, you know, a fish symbol on the back of their car. Or maybe they're holding their car keys and they'll have a fish symbol on their car keys. 
And it get, it's, it's a perfect opportunity to engage in conversation. And, oh, I see, I see you've got the fish sign. And I always say it like this, what does that mean to you? Oh, well, it, it means that I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. I said, wow, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. Then I ask a second question. Tell me, where are you going to church? Where are you involved? And I, more and more, when I ask that question, people will kind of hang their heads and they'll say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not. It gives us an opportunity to engage in conversation. But what I'm asking is what happens to people who at one time, this took less than a week here, at one time were on fire for Jesus, but it doesn't last. Maybe it's the parable of the, the sower. The second soil where they receive the word with, with a lot of joy and they spring up immediately, but it says that they, they have no firm root. And so when temptation and persecution and affliction comes, they fall away. Maybe it's that. But a hint is this. And I hope you saw it as we read it. We're going to go back and look at it again. A lot of times it's because people really do not understand who Jesus is and why he came. And This is rampant in our day. Look back at verse 37. Do you see it? There's a hint here. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Mark it. For all the mighty works that they had seen. There's at least one parallel. There are several parallels. I'm going to put one up for you. This is in John chapter 12. And it gives some insight. You see... The, the view that they had of Jesus was not necessarily wrong. It was just incomplete, woefully incomplete. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. But this is telling. The reason the crowd went to meet him, that, those are my italics, but that is the word of God. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard what he had done that he had done this sign. There is such a temptation to see Jesus only coming to meet our felt needs. Again, they had a wrong view of Jesus, or at least a woefully inadequate view of Jesus. By the way, that is the entire premise upon which this movement that has been around now for a long, long time, it started, it was named the Church Growth Movement, and then became the Seeker Sensitive Movement, a movement based unapologetically on the philosophy that Jesus came primarily to meet my needs. One of my favorite books I've shared with some of you before. Now, it's rather, it, it, the title and the cover, they look um, 
it, it looks uh, whimsical, okay? It's the only word I can think of. It's called cat and dog theology. Maybe you can't read uh, the other. Uh, rethinking our relationship with our master, and then under that, living passionately for the glory of God. And it's an easy read, and it's a great book. And here's the thesis. I, I love it. Uh, now, again, I'll, I'll ask, I've asked this sometimes in the past, uh, are any of you dog owners? Okay. How many of you are cat owners? Do you guys realize there's a difference between dogs and cats? Okay. I love this illustration in the book. Dogs have masters, cats have servants. And there's the, the owner of the dog taking the dog to obedience school. There's the cat taking the human to obedience school. Now, the book makes this premise with a cute, I think it's a, it's a cute illustration, but it's a really pointed illustration that in every church there are cat Christians and there are dog Christians. Follow me. Follow him, the author. He says that, that a, a Christian who is operating out of the mindset of a dog is going to basically say to the Lord, you feed me. You heal me. You care about me. You must be God. But a cat, Christian, says, you feed me, you heal me, you take care of me, I must be God. People were coming to Jesus because of the signs that they had done, because of the bread that they had fed them, he had fed them with, rather than to see the utter wonder of his glory. Ray Ortland has given one of the most incredible quotes. Really, I, I want to key off of this and just give a, a brief illustration of this. Follow along. Now, when he talks about a local deity that, that's going back in history, that, that every town had their, their own personal deity. In fact, sometimes in the scriptures, we see that families had their own deity. So that's what he's, he's keying off of. Our local deity is not Jesus. He goes by the name Jesus, but in reality, our local deity is Jesus Jr. Our little Jesus is popular because he is useful. He makes us feel better while conveniently fitting into the margins of our busy life. But he is not terrifying or compelling or thrilling. When we hear the gospel of Jesus Jr., our casual response is, yeah, that's what I believe in. Jesus Jr. does not confront us, surprise us, stun us. He looks down on us with a benign, all-approving grin. He tells us how wonderful we really are, how entitled we really are. Jesus Jr. appeals to the flesh. Jesus Jr. is the magnification of self. Jesus Jr. does not change us. Because he is the projection of us. I could give so many illustrations, and this one is it's just been on my mind 
probably for a couple of reasons. I remember, and this was back in the 90s, I, I don't know how much things have changed since the 90s, but I do see changes. Maybe it was just the couple, or maybe it was more a reflection of the thought of the culture of that time, but I remember in a church that I served when a couple came and visited and filled out a card. Jim encouraged us to fill out cards. Well, they did. And so we always went over the cards in in staff meeting, and on the card, the man had one name and the woman had another name, different last names, but the same address. So we we talked about that a little bit. I wonder what this means. We're we're not rushing to judgment or anything like that. And I said, I'll be glad to go visit them. And so I went to visit them, and sure enough, they they were living together. They'd indicated, they'd checked the little box, we want to join the church. What do I do? If the God of our church, the local deity of our church is Jesus Jr., then of course I know what I'm going to do. Come on! But I prayed for grace and wisdom. I prayed before I went. And so I asked that couple the question. I said, we would love to have you come and join the church, but do you see any problem? And they both, literally, they both hung their heads. It was obvious there was a sense of shame or guilt or conviction or whatever you want to call it. And they said, yes, we're living together. What do we do? And I said, well, I can fix that. I really did. I said, do you love each other? Do you plan on being married to each other? Are you committed to each other? And they said, yes. And I said, then I would love to marry you guys. I'd already heard their testimony. They were professing Christians. And, and I said, I would love to marry you, marry you. And then after that, let's talk about joining the church. And I did, and they did. Now, fast forward to, this is fairly recent history, when I was talking to a young man, identical situation. And I asked that young man, I said, basically the same thing. I said, do you see any problem? Literally, he, he, he was stumped. He did not see, these are both professing Christians. I said, no. I said, are you telling me that you do not sense any kind of, there's no sense in you of um, conviction? No. I said, well, we, we need to talk some more. Now, I don't know if that's just, again, a reflection bringing this up to date. What the culture, this is, what the, this is where we are in our culture. And unfortunately, sometimes the culture has made its way into the church. And, and so culture trumps biblical revelation. Jesus came, he's not a Jesus Jr. He came to confront lovingly. He came to change our lives. 
Point two is this. True discipleship is more than experience, more than feelings. Now, these two are related. They're closely linked. But, but I'm looking at the disciples now. I'm, I'm not thinking of the crowd. I'm thinking of the disciples, and I'm putting myself there. So if you're a, a, any kind of a leader, Sunday school class teacher, did you get that? True discipleship is more than experience. I cannot imagine what the disciples were feeling on that day. If it had been me, I would have been in absolute, it would have been euphoria. They might have been thinking, wow, this is absolutely stunning. They probably thought that this was the pinnacle of success. Now, as the world would define it. They might have been saying, Why? just look at the crowds, the recognition, the accolades. They're going to join our church. Well, they didn't have a church then. They're going to join our movement. This is pretty heady stuff, and it goes on today. Listen to this, and I, I have found myself falling into that all through my ministry life. But while the disciples might have been, I, I don't want to, to, to read into, I'm just saying that it is very normal for us to feel like that. We're defining success incorrectly. While the disciples were probably in euphoria, what was Jesus doing? Come on, look back at verse 41. And when he drew near and he saw the city, what did Jesus do? A totally different perspective. He wept over people. Do you realize there are only three times in the scripture where Jesus wept? One was at the tomb. Lazarus. This, his heart, his heart was, was troubled. He was stirred over the sense of death and the, the, the pain it was causing. Jesus wept. The second was, was right here. He wept over the city. And he goes on to talk about it. The, the, most, the most incredible, listen to me, the most incredible destruction in the nation of Israel was coming up in 70 A.D. You say, oh, no, 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 there was one worse, the Holocaust. In terms of numbers of people, you read the historians like Josephus, there was never anything that compared to the destruction of Israel by Titus and the Roman legions, the sieging of the city, the death, the mayhem, the scattering of the nation of Israel. There was one other place, and, and let me just say this. I, I wrote down in my notes that in every case where Jesus wept, it was always over the effects of sin. It was always for other people. And then I read this and I thought, well, now wait a minute. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and he doesn't say petition, but supplication. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, at face value, it looks like Jesus was praying for himself get me out of this. He was praying against an early death so that he might 
complete the work the Father had given him to do. The Father heard him, and he answered that prayer. You see, when Jesus weeps, it is always for others. It's always over death and destruction. And he knew the hearts of the disciples. And it's easy for us to trust in in experience for our peace and not in the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the only way to lasting, eternal peace, to true peace. And I wrote down a little prayer at the end of this point. Lord, give us the same heart for that kind of investment. Move us from pursuing or following an experience of Jesus to following Jesus. Move us from seeking Jesus only if he helps us achieve worldly success or acclaim or comfort or security, which, by the way, are at best deceptive and fleeting. And Lord, help us to seek him for who he is. Help us to move from a theology of avoiding to a theology of embracing when it comes to self-denial and cross-bearing. The third lesson growing out of this is just simply this. True knowledge is, excuse me, true discipleship is more than knowledge. Jesus says something in verse 44, the second part of that. And, And he's talking about, He's grieving over Jerusalem because they were going to be destroyed in the future. And he said this, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, what in the world does he mean you didn't know? They knew the Torah. They knew the prophecies of his coming. And they knew the fact that he had already fulfilled so many of the prophecies. They saw him right then fulfill the prophecy out of Zechariah chapter 9. But still they missed him. That's why he wept. And I'm glad he did. Charles Spurgeon said this, a Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. Folks, Don't ever let the sovereignty of God in salvation negate his sorrow over unbelief. That's what we're dealing with here. Moving from knowing about to knowing. He is the righteous judge, yet he does not delight in judgment but mercy. The Bible says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness towards sinners. And I just have this simple question for you today. Wouldn't it be the tragedy of tragedies if you know about Jesus, but you missed him? Hebrews chapter 6 gives some insight, I think, into the the marks of a Christian. We're going to look at this in 
a couple of slides, okay? He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. He says, for it is impossible to restore a certain kind of person to repentance. Well, what kind of person? The person that knows about and that comes so close but never goes on to combining what they know with faith. For it is impossible, he says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened. These folks were enlightened. There may be some of you who are enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the ages to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And earlier in Hebrews, we find the exact reason why that I mentioned just a second ago. Therefore, let us fear. We talked about the fear of God last week. While a promise remains of entering in his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. That, that's, that was just described. You've come close. You've been enlightened. You've tasted. You've shared. But you've come short, for indeed, we have the good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those Don't be like the crowds. Don't just have knowledge about, but come into a knowledge of. How do you do that? By seeing who Jesus is. By understanding what he has come to do. By understanding who we are. We were created to glorify him, but we cannot because we are sinners And we have fallen short of the glory of God. But there is hope. Jesus Christ died Calvary's cross for sinners like us. If you repent and turn away from sin and turn by faith alone to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you will be saved. Pray for those of you who do not know him today that that will be your experience. I pray that the words of Jesus would not be true of you. You did not know the day of your visitation. Father, I thank you that you have given us the picture of what Jesus came to do, the picture of how important it is for those of us who are disciples, who are followers of Christ, to come all the way into that knowledge of you by faith in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, for those of us who know you, we pray that we might take these words to heart. We pray if there are any situations, anything that has been the reality in our lives that has kept us from fully engaging 
that today we might put that aside, deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow you. And I pray for those who may not know you today, that today would be the day of salvation. So Lord, we praise you and thank you. Now, do the work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit and your word and help us to respond appropriately. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. We're going